If you've been around the past month or so, you know we've been having a conversation around spiritual practices or disciplines, um, not just the kind of traditional 12, there have been a few extras thrown in there, um, but things like fasting and prayer and the Sabbath and stewardship. And so this evening, we're going to talk around the practice of worship. Now, maybe unlike the fasting practice or even the Sabbath, worship is a something for most of us, if you've grown up in church or spent a little bit of time here, there's probably a level of familiarity with the concept of singing, of praise, of worship. We're familiar with it. And, you know, one of the dangers when I was processing and thinking about it is that anything familiar, we can kind of neglect it sometimes. We can sort of know, okay, this is what it is. This is what we do. Or maybe we don't even know why we do it, but we do it every week. So we're afraid to ask. I read a study by the Barnard Group that said one in five church-going attendees, so not just kind of, I call myself a Christian, but people who show up week in and week out, one out of five actually admitted to having no idea idea why we worship. And that makes sense. Standing up and singing out loud is not a common thing. It's not something that lots of people do, maybe unless you're in a British pub somewhere and someone's playing football. But other than that, it's not a common practice. And so what I want to invite us to do this evening is to discover or rediscover a little bit of the biblical practice of worship. Now, brief disclaimer, worship, if you've spent any time in the Word, is a pretty big idea, kind of capital W, if you will. It is a uh, a way of orienting ourselves. It is our whole lives. We talk about worship in lots of ways. However, within the scripture, public and or private praise, i.e. hymns, singing, dancing, declarations, psalms, uh, thanksgiving, reflection, all of those things are the practiced methods by which we engage in the kind of big idea. So there's the big idea. This is the way in which scripture equips us to participate in it. And so that's what we're going to be exploring. Not maybe the big idea of worship, but the practice of worship itself. Okay, so let me begin by saying that there are pervasive cultural realities that make worship a particularly challenging practice for us in this day and age. And I want to unpack those a little bit. I want to take a few minutes to look at uh, what this kind of postmodern vortex that we are either surrounded by or sucked into, um, because I want us to be aware that there are very real resistances we face when it comes to the posture and practice of worship. Um, I, a couple weeks ago, bumped into an old friend of mine. We had been a part of a church plant together for years. We'd led worship together for years, and we kind of got chatting, and uh, come to find out he doesn't go to church anymore, and more heartbreaking than that is he's left the faith entirely. No interest in Jesus, doesn't believe it anymore, and when I kind of asked him more, he said this to me, and I quote, you know, I gave it the old college try, but it just didn't work for me. Just didn't work for me. He wasn't hurt. He wasn't offended. He didn't disagree with doctrine. It just didn't work. Now, simultaneously, I was reading a book by a man called Carl Truman. It's called Strange New World. It's fascinating. It's a philosophical and historical look, in his words, as at the rise and triumph of the modern self. And in the introduction, it says this. I think I have it up for us. 
Oh, there it is. Where in the past, quote, a person was a creature of God who sought to conform himself to truth, to objective moral standards in pursuit of eternal life. Modern man, however, seeks to be true to himself rather than conform his thoughts, his feelings, and his actions to objective reality. Man's inner life itself becomes the source of truth and authenticity to inner feelings rather than adherence to transcendent truth becomes the norm. Okay, that's pretty meaty, but can you see what's happening in there, right? Now, there's, he, I'll, sum, I'll sum, summize it, thank you, for you. This is the modern self, he writes, one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly only in accordance with one's inward feelings. Now, I love feelings. Uh, I, I am not opposed to feelings. Feelings are good. My mom's a therapist. I'm in therapy. What he's saying is not that those things are bad, but what Truman goes on to explain is that in regards to faith, a conflict begins to emerge within us because, I think I have this quote too, any restraint or restriction any alternative formation, any sacrifice counter to the authority of my inner feelings is to be viewed as repressive and consequently destructive to this modern self. So what I feel is ultimate truth. Ultimate authority rests entirely within me. So it's not about whether the Bible is true or not. It's about whether or not it works for me. And for many, it just doesn't work for me. Now, how does this conversation, thanks for tracking with me, uh, how does this tie into the practice of worship? Romans 12, picking up in verse 21, says this, Although they knew God, they did not worship him as God. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped mortal man. They exchanged, verse 25 concludes, the truth of God for a lie, worshiping what had been created instead of the creator. They exchange the eternal God for mortal man. It's this very passage that N.T. Wright comments on, and he says, quote, Herein lies the fundamental problem with the human race, which is not sin, but idolatry. It is a failure of worship. The fundamental problem with the human race is a failure of worship. Now, if we take what Truman is commenting on in our kind of current cultural climate and what Paul writes about humanity as a whole, we are led to the conclusion that today's normative social doctrine aligns quite perfectly with the fault in the human condition, but is therefore in direct opposition to the biblical mandate of worship. You see, culture is steadily teaching us to exchange this idea of right orientation towards God, right direction towards God, and it is teaching us to turn that direction towards ourselves, towards our own feelings and our own desires and our own wants as if those are the pillars by which we understand life and reality. I'm being told that what I feel is ultimate, that what I want is the most important thing, and that what I like should determine my actions, which is why, circling back, 
a conversation around the practice of how we praise and worship and who we praise and worship is absolutely essential. We are being conditioned to posture ourselves towards ourselves. And the biblical practice of worship is the eternal reposturing to the living God. So we have to unlearn some tendencies within us and allow our souls to relearn what it means to be in right direction, right relationship, right focus on the living God. I think we need to pay much more careful attention, not just to our public practice, but our private practice of worship, of singing, of reading psalms, of thanksgiving, of glorifying him. These actions, these things that we see in scripture are designed to directly oppose the deformation of my soul that is happening all the time. I think about Mark 12 where where he says, love the Lord with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your body. Because when I love the Lord, when I worship with all my heart and my soul and my mind and my body in deference to another, in, in, in priority of another, in the glorification of a rule that is so much higher than my own, higher than my own preferences, an authority that is greater than my wants and desires, that act, when I do that in this place, it is systematically cutting the ties of idolatry in my very being. And so this evening, I want to take a little bit of time to explore, to be inspired, um, hopefully more than anything to get us asked to ask questions about our own personal practice, our own personal experiences of this. And uh, if I can invite you to interrupt the kind of autopilot response we have to worship. We kind of come in, we sing the songs, we do the thing. Let's, let's interrupt that autopilot response and let's see this as a powerful tool in the formation of our souls. Sound good? Okay. In an age of self... We need to be worshipers of Jesus. Now, there are so many aspects that we could look at. I mean, it's such a broad uh, topic. I've spent a fair bit of time teaching on worship in different contexts. And so I was a little bit like, where do we want to go? But given the conversations we've been having as a community, given some of the topics we've been wrestling with, I, I wanted to focus in on the practice of worship as essentially a tool for warfare and intercession. Now, those might be newer words, Warfare, I I want us to think about praise as a tool to combat evil and darkness, uh, to combat, and we'll look at it in a second, the lies of the enemy. And secondly, intercession, praise or worship as the act of intervening on behalf of others. And there's beautiful um, scriptural evidence for for the things that we're going to talk about. There's, There's actually very compelling biblical precedent for liberation and transformation through worship. All right, you guys good? Okay, so firstly, I want to look at um, the power that worship has to silence the voice of the enemy. Satan is a liar. It is his native tongue, one of the translations of John 8 puts it. I love it. It's his native language, lies. That's what he knows. That's what he does. And you and I are being assaulted by the liar every single day. How many of us feel exhausted by simply what takes place in our minds, by the thoughts that bombard us, thoughts that we know are not of Jesus, lies about our identity and our worth, lies about his identity, God's identity and his capacity, 
Lies about his, his faithfulness, his grace, his mercy. Is it really new every morning? Has his grace covered all of my sin? What about the one I did last night? What about that? Lies about God's grace. Lies about community. I hate when I hear people walking in and feeling like I don't have a place. I don't know if anyone wants me here. Those are the lies of the enemy because he wants us to be isolated and he wants us to be alone. He doesn't want us knitted in deep into community. And so what we see is that the liar is coming against us all the time. And what scripture draws us back to is actually that praise has the power to silence those things. Psalm 8 says, the praise of infants has built a stronghold, another translation of built a stronghold as ordained strength, and silenced the voice of the foe. Praise can silence the lies of the enemy. That even from the mouth of kids, I love that. It's like at its most base, simple, childlike level, praise has the power to silence the voice of the enemy. That when we come together, that this act of adoration, that this act of glorification, that this reflection on who God is silences the lies of the enemy. What's interesting is that Jesus quotes Psalm 8 in Matthew 26, and he translates it, if you will, like this. He says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. One of the scholars I was reading said, isn't it interesting that Jesus takes uh, putting on strength and perfected praise as almost synonymous with each other? That there's this idea that they are one in the same. That when we sing praises, strength is brought into our soul and our mind and our body, into our emotions, even into the physicality of who we are. But not only are we strengthened by praise, not only do we silence the lies of the enemy in our own mind, but there's a moment in 1 Samuel 16, basically uh, the spirit of the Lord has lifted off of Saul He's left him is the language they use. And in exchange, it says an evil spirit had come to torment Saul. And in verse, I think it's verse 23, it says, and whenever the harmful spirit was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hands. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is intercession. David, one, one of the passages I was reading, he spoke about the fact that, you know, David was so anointed in worship and so, I, I mean, fill of the spirit of God that even the presence of, of, of evil could not exist when he entered into that posture of praise. And so this idea, friends, that when we come into worship, we have the power not only to redeem our own thoughts, to redeem our own minds, but also to, to stand in intercession on behalf of those around us. And what I want to know is, do we enter this place with that kind of holy expectation that when I stand and sing about the goodness of God, I'm not just singing on behalf of myself. I am singing on behalf of every single person here that they would know and experience the reality of the goodness of God. Do we enter in with that kind of faith, not just the monotony of the function? This is what we do but this is warfare. I am warring on behalf of my brothers and sisters, and they in turn, when I am weak, am warring on behalf of me. It's why worship is both a communal and a personal practice. It has to exist in the fullness of the body as well. Um, I think Richard Foster, I thought I, oh, there it is. Richard Foster, in his book on the spiritual disciplines, he said, when we are truly gathered in worship, 
things occur that could never occur alone. It happens here in community. And friends, in an age where the lies of the enemy are so loud and so seductive, man, it sounds good. We need to be equipped to see our worship, to see our praise as a weapon against those lies, as a tool by which we reclaim the the ground of our thoughts, of our physical actions, of our emotional landscapes. We need to see it as a means by which truth is restored into our very being. All right, so secondly, worship... I know, let me just say, I know that some of this language might be new to you to talk about the enemy and to talk about the devil. Um, these, are, these are terms that maybe we're a little unfamiliar with. I would love to talk to you afterwards if you have questions. I don't have all the answers, but we can at least process it together. Um, but I know that these are newer terms for some of us, but they're important because if we don't recognize that there are forces of darkness that are fighting uh, for us or against us. Sometimes we won't understand why we are so burdened, why we are so exhausted, why we feel so unable to be free from the the thoughts in our minds and 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 the, the feelings in our body. Does that make sense? And so we need to recognize that there are things that are vying for our attention, our thoughts, our minds, our bodies, okay? All right, so stay with me. Secondly, worship has the power to bring deliverance. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Chronicles. I want to read a lot of this passage. I actually realized I put the translation up there in the NSV, and I'm definitely holding the CSB. But anyways, it's fine. I did my slides myself, so no one else can be to blame. Um, This is one of my favorite passages around worship. Um, Basically, um, in... I'm going to... The... The Moabites, the Amorites, together with some of the Mennonites, come to fight against Jehoshaphat. So basically, through three different uh, people groups, I almost said troops and people in the same word, and it made an interesting sound. Uh, so um, this is, sorry, just to say it again, this is Second Chronicles 20. So uh, three different groups of people are coming against Jehoshaphat, and basically his you know, leaders and advisors come to him and say, we have no means to defeat these people. We do not have the manpower. We don't have the uh, ability. And so they gather together. I love it. Jehoshaphat stands in this assembly and he basically calls people to pray. Now I think we're going to pick up in verse 14. I'm going to read it from there just to not confuse you. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jezeel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaniah, son of Jael and son of Metan, yes. And Aliva, I actually thought I cut those words out when I made this just so I wouldn't be embarrassed, but I didn't. Um, So there it is. And they stood in the assembly, verse uh, 15. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the path of Ziz." And you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jerul. 
You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. And then a few verses later, it says this. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. Tekoa means praise, which is cool. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah, and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. And after consulting with the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men not to stand guard, men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord, his love endures forever. And as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. Oh, that's the next scripture. It's a different story. Don't worry. They're not attacked or flogged. It's different people. Uh, <laughs> um, so basically, I love this moment, okay? He, he gets the army all together. And I want to imagine kind of this Lord of the Rings, sort of vast landscape. There's three armies of orcs descending on them. And he's like, okay, you, 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 and you. I want you to go out in front of everyone, and I want you to sing. And they're like, give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. You know, kind of waiting for that moment. No, they're probably full of faith. I shouldn't, I shouldn't discredit them. But I love that moment. You know, the scripture says that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. This is it. This is that moment where it makes absolutely no sense for them to stand in praise and worship. And yet that is the very means by which they are delivered. I love that it says, as they began to sing. God confounds the army. It's this beautiful picture of the fact that that the battle was not about flesh and blood. The battle was not about the things that were directly in front of them. And they stood in faith and they spoke the truth of who God is, the splendor of his holiness. And it is in that moment that their deliverance comes. And I think, friends, for you and I, if we believe that the scripture, what the scripture says, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers and authorities in the spiritual realms, then we have to be ready for spiritual warfare. And praise, as we see in scripture, is one of the most powerful weapons we have. Praise is the declaration that an eternal reality will always triumph over the temporal one. That God's rule, that God's authority, that God's dominion far exceeds anything that we could face in the here and now. And when I get on my knees, even in the most dastardly of circumstances, when I bow down before him, when I submit my will, and I lift my hands despite all circumstances to the living God. I am claiming the truth of that power over everything else. Psalms 95, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Why? For we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. I'm under his care. I'm in his pasture I'm not the boss of me. I'm not responsible for this. I am under his care. Psalms 100, shout to the Lord. All the earth, worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God, that it is he who made us, that we are his, that we are his people. 
his, I'm his. Deliverance rests in that knowledge that I am his. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but what? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Friends, praise is the declaration that he has ultimate power. And it is a gift that we, get to, that we get to hold that, that we get to participate in that, that we get to know that. And honestly, I don't know exactly how it works, but it does. I know from personal experience and situations when there is nothing else to do and we sit in worship and God moves. We believe that despite the armies in front of us declaring the love of God, the holiness of God can change things. That's wild. Someone far cleverer than me can explain it to you. A few weeks ago, I just, it's not in there, but a few weeks ago, um, Stu and I had been, my husband, um, just man, like a rough couple weeks. So, um, yeah, anyways, and we ended up, and this is, we, we're both, we both play music, we both worship. I don't think we've ever done this in 13 years of being together, but we just were having a really hard time, and uh, I hate crying from the pulpit. Can I still blame it on allergies? Uh, anyways, and we just ended up in this moment of repentance and worship, And let me say, there was no kind of deliverance like that. There was no kind of power, like in the midst of our own deep wrestles with hurt and disappointment, to sing the name of Jesus, to declare that even in the hardest of circumstances where we feel our differences and we feel that kind of war within us, that he is still good, that we are still the sheep of his pasture that we are still his, that we are held together, not by what we can muster, but why he can muster. That's what worship does. And I can guarantee you that nothing else could have brought us together in that moment, like being in the presence of God and worshiping, not wrestling with our own imperfections, but worshiping his perfection. And the fact that that brings us back together. Okay, finally, worship can transform the suffering we experience. There's a moment in Acts 16, uh, such a great moment. So Paul and Silas have been preaching the gospel. They actually cast a demon out of this girl and she is a slave and her slave master is actually not happy because he has been monetizing her manifestation, which is horrendous. So Paul and Silas come along, they liberate her from that and basically a crowd rises up and... It's, it's terrible. So they're the ones, if you pop that scripture, they're the ones who are being beaten and flogged and, uh, and I can read. Oh, there. Okay. So the crowd joined in attacking them. Okay. And the chief magistrate stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had been severely, after they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them in the inner prison and secured their feet in stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake at the foundation, and the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains come loose. 
after everything that's happened, they're in the innermost prison and their feet are secured. And what is their response? Praise, obviously. And the more I sat with this this week, the more I was so challenged because it's the first thing we see them do. It's not their Hail Mary. It's not their kind of, well, we've tried everything else. It is the first thing at about midnight, they pray and worship. And I thought, what would it look like to be a people of God who no matter the circumstances, no matter the things we face, have the courage and the conviction to turn to worship? What would it look like to be a people of God whose response is not X, Y, and Z, but you know what? Let's praise Jesus. Let's praise him for his goodness and his grace. And friends, I thought, you know, what a beautiful image of worship that is not dictated by anything other than his eternal worthiness. They didn't worship him because he'd been taken, I can't remember. They didn't worship him because he'd been taken out of prison. They didn't worship him, God, you got us out. We thought we were gonna die. No, they, they still probably think they might die. But their response is praise. It wasn't about whether they felt like it. It wasn't about whether it suited them. I was reading this week um, a writer called Rabbi um, Shumli, and he commented on the religiosity of contemporary culture. And he notes that in the West, we have a generation whose principal desire is to feel God rather than to worship him. The challenge with that, friends, is we all know we don't always feel God. And too often, because this is the cultural narrative, that allows us to opt out of the very thing that we should be doing. Not because he needs it. We need it. I need to worship God more than ever when I don't feel like it. I need to worship God more than ever when I am faced with circumstances that are beyond my control, grief that feels like it's gonna overwhelm me. Those are the very moments where despite all that I am feeling, I need to respond in worship. And that can be here in a corporate place or it can be in the isolation of the midnight hour when you wake up gripped by fear or anxiety or that nightmare that you've had comes back again and again. It is that moment that I need to be prepared to worship more than any other. It is that moment that I need to know how to declare the power and the majesty and the holiness and the goodness and the grace of God. And I want us to be a people who know how to dig deep, men and women with the fortitude to say, though the fig tree does not blossom, though the olive crop fails and the fruit fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen or cows in the field, basically, I have no food, I have no money, I have no prospects, I have no job. What does Habakkuk say? Yet will I praise the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. God hadn't done anything. He's saying everything has gone wrong, yet will I praise the Lord. And time and time again in the scriptures, particularly in the Psalms, we see the way in which the psalmist is transformed in suffering through the practice of praise. Rescue me from my enemies, Psalm 59. Protect me, powerful men attack me. They return, I love, at the evening, like snarling like dogs, but... I will sing of your strength. 
and will joyfully proclaim your faithful love in the morning. For you have been a stronghold for me, a refuge in my day of trouble. To you, my strength, I will sing praise. When we are overcome, when we are brought to our deepest suffering, do we know how to praise and worship the living God? It is a weapon that fights on our behalf, friends. It is the moments when we have nothing left. That adoration of the one true living God is most perfectly practiced in us. Worship is not just three songs on a Sunday. I hate that. It's like using an ax to cut cheese. It's it's wasted. It's a waste. I don't know if you ever tried. It's a waste, okay? Uh, It's a weird analogy, but I was thinking of swords and cheese. Uh, (laughs) No, praise is this tool that we have. And it's something, if my husband's really into like knives and axes and that sort of thing, and this is what I've come to know, is that any kind of weapon or tool has to be tended It has to be sharpened. It has to be ready so that in those moments of need, it is good to go. And so when we come on a Sunday, when we sit in our bedrooms and sing songs out of key, off tune, we are practicing this muscle. We are sharpening this tool so that in the darkest of moments, we can stand. Praise is something that can fight in defense of our minds. It can fight in defense of our souls, our bodies. It can fight on behalf of our anxiety and our depression. It can fight on behalf of our fear and our insecurity, our hopelessness and our doubt. Praise is in defense of our very souls. I'm quoting a lot from the Psalms tonight, but man, almost done. But Psalm 71, may the accuser of my soul be ashamed and consumed because I will always hope and will always praise you more and more. My mouth will declare your righteousness, my salvation all day long, and I will enter the strength, enter into the strength of the Lord my God. I love that. May my accuser be ashamed because every time he comes at me, what's my response? Praise, worship. And this is not about kind of big, loud, it doesn't have to be like that. It can literally be a bare whisper in the middle of the night when you are overwhelmed by whatever it is you can experience. It's Stu and I in that moment where it feels like our marital obstacles are just too big for us to overcome on our own. And we look to Jesus for our deliverance. It might be in the face of addiction. It might be in the face of chronic illness. It might be sitting around your table community with no instruments and no real singers in the group, but you sit and you praise the living God. It's choosing to praise him even when circumstances should dictate we do otherwise. When culture is crying from the rooftops to thine own self be true, I want to stand and shout, no, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. When the enemy shouts about my guilt and my shame and the sin that I carry, I sing back, no, no, he knit me together in my mother's womb. And he has taken my sin as far from the east as from the west. I think about that old um, hymn, uh, when Satan tempts me to despair, 
and tells me of my guilt within. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Every time I sing that song, I am reminded of the profound kindness of God. When we are surrounded, friends, by the spirit of this age, spirits of fear, spirits of lust, spirits of greed, spirits of idolatry, when the armies, it feels like, rise up around us and they seek to rob us of peace and joy and the inheritance we have and the identity we know to be true, that is when we stand and sing. That is when we worship the God who was and is to come. That is when we sing of his love forever. And we sing it until the truth slowly starts to seep in until my soul is reformed, until my mind is rid of the lies of the enemy, until my spirit comes back into communion with the eternal Holy Spirit, and until the eternal reality becomes the one in which I am basking. That is the power of worship. That is the weapon of praise, and that is what I want to invite us to practice. It's this. It's the power of the living God despite all circumstances and all situations of people who stand and say, yet will I praise. Let's pray.